So John chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the, few, of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And the reading continues at verse 31. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form. Nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Well, if I invited someone in a wheelchair to come up <clears throat> the front here this morning, someone who you knew uh, had been confined to that wheelchair for some 38 years, 
If I invited that person to come up to the front here and I said to them, you are healed, get up and walk, what would your response be? As a preacher, I'm often looking for attention-grabbing things to do at the start of a sermon, and that would be one of them, I reckon, if I could do that. Not this morning, I'm afraid. If I could, though, it would grab your attention. It would require you to respond in some way. What would your response be? This morning in John chapter 5, we read of that kind of miracle, that kind of amazing event. And we read something of how the people there responded. As we begin to consider how we should respond to this miracle of Jesus, to this event... Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you are at work uh, through your word. And we ask now that you would speak to us through your word by the power of your spirit. We ask that you would help me to speak clearly and faithfully and give us all open hearts and minds to hear what it is that you have to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in John chapter 5, we discover that in Jesus' time in Jerusalem, there was this pool, a pool that was thought by many to have this mysterious healing power. We don't really know much about the pool. We don't know of its background, but we know that people thought it had healing power. We don't have any evidence to say that it did work or that it didn't work. We just don't know. But what we do know is that people, rightly or wrongly, believed that if a sick person got into the pool while the water was swirling around somehow, then they might be healed. And here, at this pool in verse 3, here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralysed. And in particular from verse 5, there was one who had been born an invalid for 38 years. Now Jesus sees this man, this invalid, and asks him, do you want to get well? And this man, this man, it seems that he thinks that Jesus is asking him, why don't you get into the pool? Don't you want to get well? Why don't you get up and get into the pool? And so this man with a disability explains to Jesus that he can't. He can't get up and there's no one to help him. When the water swirls around, there's no one to help him get into that pool to be healed. And it seems like this man is maybe thinking, Jesus might be going to help me get into the pool. At last there might be someone who can help me get into the water so that I can be healed. But Jesus doesn't need a mysterious pool to bring about the healing Jesus doesn't need to wait for a nondescript swirling of the waters to heal someone. Jesus simply says to this man with a disability, Get up, verse 8, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Just amazing, right? Amazing. It's a miracle that demands a response. But before we move into how we might respond to this miracle, let's just pause for a moment to reflect on something that might have caught your attention as the passage was read to us. 
in verse 14, Jesus later on finds this man that he healed and he says to him in verse 14, see you're well again, stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. The implication is that this man's sin has somehow caused his sickness. This man's sin has caused his sickness. Please hear this though. Please hear this. Jesus is not saying, he is not saying that all sickness is always self-imposed. Jesus is not saying that all sickness is the direct result of specific sin. It's true that some sin can sometimes lead directly to sickness. Greed, for example, can lead to obesity, which can cause all sorts of diseases. And if our sin does lead to our sickness, then God is being kind and giving us extra incentive to stop that sin. But we can't and we must not say that all sickness is always directly related to specific sinfulness. That's not the case. Cancer or the common cold, for example, very often have no direct relation to any specific sin. The children that Tab works with at the orphanage, they're not suffering severe disability because of their own sinfulness. Many of them were born that way. They didn't even have a chance to commit any specific sin before their bodies started malfunctioning. Sickness and disability are not necessarily the direct result of sinfulness. Jesus himself actually makes that point later on in the, in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 9, uh, when Jesus heals a blind man, when he heals another man, uh, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man or his parents sinned, said Jesus. Very often, sickness has no direct link to our sin. But sometimes... Sickness can indeed be the direct result of sin. And for the man in John 5, his disability was directly related to some kind of sinfulness that he was engaged in. And so Jesus says to him, you've got to stop that, buddy. Otherwise, something worse might happen to you. So Jesus here has healed this sinful man with a severe disability in a very dramatic, miraculous way. How do we respond? Awe? Wonder? Praise? Excitement? Tears of joy for the guy? Faith? Doubt? Doubt, maybe. Well, it might surprise you to know that some people respond to this miracle by declaring it a crime against the law of God. Verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. The word persecute here has a technical legal sense to it. It's not just that they started giving him a hard time. It actually means that they took him to a trial of some kind. They were accusing him of breaking the law. And then the rest of the chapter is Jesus' testimony in that trial. What we have from verse 16 onwards is the prosecution for a crime against the law of God and then a statement of defense from Jesus. And the crime wasn't that Jesus healed a guy. Healings weren't against the law of God per se. 
The crime was that Jesus did this healing on the Sabbath. In the Ten Commandments, God stipulated that the Israelites were not to work on the Sabbath. It was a day of rest from work, to be kept holy, to be kept separate for God. In Numbers 15, for example, we read of how the Lord said a man had to be put to death because he was collecting wood. He was working on the Sabbath. You are not to work on the Sabbath. And now here is Jesus healing someone on the Sabbath. Healing, they say, is work. And so he must not heal on the Sabbath. He must not work on the Sabbath. Jesus shouldn't have been working on the Sabbath. And therefore he must be killed. Now Jesus' response to this is interesting because he doesn't deny that he was indeed working on the Sabbath. Verse 17. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, Jesus is shifting the discussion here to get to the real point. You say, I worked on the Sabbath. I say, I'm the son of God and therefore, like my father, I'm always at work, including on the Sabbath, and therefore there can be no issue here. See, this isn't about healing. This is not about the Sabbath. It's about Jesus' claim to be the son of God, his claim to be equal with God. In verses 19 to 30, Jesus unpacks his equality with God, but the point of the whole thing is that Jesus is claiming to be the son of God. Of God. That was the real issue at hand in this trial. Jesus knew it. The Jews knew it. Is Jesus the Son of God? In verses 31 to 47, Jesus provides three testimonies to support his case. Three testimonies to prove that he is indeed the Son of God. The testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of Jesus' life and the testimony of God the Father himself through the scriptures. So let's look at those one at a time. First of all, he refers to John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, prior to Jesus' public ministry, John was going around telling people to expect that the Lord would come soon. And John the Baptist believed that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. And we get the impression that John was uh, an eccentric kind of character. He seems to be very well known. And he had a good following. People actually listened to him. He had credibility. And that's why he's referred to in more than one of the Gospels. Even some of Jesus' accusers here in John chapter 5 had, at least for a time, openly accepted John the Baptist's teaching. Verse 35. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. See, Jesus is saying, you believed John for a while. But now that he claims that I'm the son of God, well, now you don't believe his testimony about me. That's a bit convenient for you, isn't it? But, says Jesus, I'm not relying on John's testimony. Just look at what I'm doing. My life alone surely testifies that the Father sent me. Verse 36. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish... The works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. I've turned water into wine, for goodness sake. 
I've answered the Pharisees' questions. I healed the, the royal official's son. I knew about the Samaritan, wom- the Samaritan woman's sordid history. And yes, I healed a lame man on the Sabbath. Surely this is enough for you to believe my claim to be the Son of God. And the work here that Jesus is referring to goes further than just the work that he's already done to this point. The word finish in verse 36 ties Jesus' testimony here to his work on the cross. In John 19.30, while Jesus was hanging on the cross, we read that Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The work that Jesus is finishing in John 5 was everything that he would do in his life on earth, climaxing in his death on the cross that enabled sins to be forgiven such that those who believe in him may have life in his name. Look at what I am doing in my life, says Jesus. Look at the testimony of my life. And if you do, you know that I am the Son of God. Respond appropriately. But if that's not enough, says Jesus, then I have another testimony for you. The testimony of God the Father himself, verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. God the Father in the Old Testament scriptures points to me as God the Son, says Jesus. Yet you refuse to believe. Now this is an an important point for us. The Old Testament scriptures point us to Jesus and help us understand Jesus. So if you are reading the Old Testament and thinking about how the Old Testament applies to your life, first of all, we need to think, what does this Old Testament passage tell us about Jesus? How does the Old Testament help me understand Jesus? And once we've done that, then we can apply it to our lives. That's why we don't practice the the Sabbath the same way as they did in the Old Testament. Because Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath such that it applies in a very different way to us now. I'd be happy to talk about that with you more afterwards, if you like. But Jesus is saying the Old Testament scriptures testify about him. In particular, in verses 45 and 46, Jesus refers to Moses. The very one who received the law that the people were trying to use to persecute Jesus, Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. And Jesus' point is that they don't actually believe Moses or the scriptures. They aren't really interested in what God says. They're more interested in what their peers say. Verse 44. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the one, from the only God? 
They were more interested in boosting their ego by listening to the praise of other people and getting the glory of the people around them than they were to listening to the word of God and getting the glory that comes from God. They were willing to turn the volume of God's voice up while they turned the volume of the opinions of the people around them other way around. They were willing to turn the volume of God's voice down while they were willing to turn the opinion, the volume of the opinion of the people around them up. They were more concerned with what people thought than they were concerned with what God thought. Now we're not told here exactly how the people responded to Jesus' statement in this trial. Not told precisely what happens. But Jesus' point is very clear. Jesus challenges everyone, be they present at this trial 2,000 years ago or be they present here at Trinity Northeast this morning, Jesus challenges all of us to come to a verdict. Will you believe Jesus or will you condemn Jesus? Will you turn the volume of people's opinions up while you turn the volume of God's voice down? Will you be less concerned about what people think of us and more concerned with the glory that comes from God? What's your verdict? I have a friend in China, a, China, a Chinese man. Let's call him Wayne. His, Wayne's, his name is not Wayne. It's nothing like that at all, but for the purpose of discussion, we'll call him Wayne. He became a Christian about seven years ago after speaking, uh, spending lots of time with Tab, actually, and other people that we work with in our organisation, uh, Evergreen in China. He became a Christian uh, after many years. Eventually, he decided to listen to God and believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. I catch up with him now uh, once a fortnight or so for dinner and we talk about life and we talk about God and sometimes we open the Bible together. One evening when we were catching up having dinner, Wayne told me that uh, a friend of his uh, who, worked with, who works with the local public security bureau had once said to Wayne, once and once only, that Wayne shouldn't spend time with people from Evergreen like me. And certainly he shouldn't spend time with the head of Evergreen, who he also catches up with sometimes. And this friend of Wayne said to him, you know, your phone is being monitored because you spend time with these foreign Christians. Yikes, I thought. Really? I asked him, how do you feel about that? And he thought for a while. And he said, you know, I don't care. They can do what they like. They can do what they want. Jesus is more important to me than what they say. See, Wayne is intentionally turning the volume of God's voice up in his life and turning down the volume of people's opinions and the potential reprisals that might go along with that. When I speak to people in China and in Australia, when I speak to people who aren't Christians in China or in Australia, sometimes I get the feeling from them that some of them really do have this sense that Jesus' claims are true, that he is the Son of God, that he died for sin, and that in him is true eternal life. But even though they have this sense, they choose to turn the volume of Jesus' claims down 
Well, they turn the volume of the people, the, the opinions of the people around them up. Sometimes they seem to be concerned about the opinion of those who have influence over their lives. It might be the government, it might be their employers, or maybe they're just concerned about the opinion of their family or of their friends. Whoever it is, I sometimes get the feeling that they have a sense that the claims of Jesus are true, but they turn the volume of God's voice down and the volume of people's opinion up. If that's you, let me encourage you to pay attention to God's voice. And if you would like to talk to someone about Jesus' claims, then I'm sure Stephen or Mike here at Trinity Northeast would love to catch up with you and talk more about Jesus' claims. You can just write something to that effect. Use this uh, communication card and tick the I'm interested in finding out more about Jesus box and Stephen or Mike will be in touch with you so that you can reflect on Jesus' claims and listen to his claims. What I'd like to do now is just take a little bit of a step back and make an observation about Jesus in John chapter 5 and in the early chapters of John. Jesus here in John 5 points to the work that he was doing or the work that he was finishing as evidence that he was the Son of God. And in particular, he's pointing to the thing that he's just done, the event that led to his trial. And that event was that Jesus approached a sinful man with a severe disability who no one else was helping and healed him. Jesus went to a man that made the rest of God's people feel uncomfortable. Jesus had compassion on him where no one else was willing to help. And Jesus was moved to action. If you read through the early chapters of John, you'll see that this was a fairly common practice for Jesus, the Son of God. Later in John 17, just before Jesus dies on the cross for sin, he prays, that his, uh, he prays as he sends out his disciples, he prays for them uh, that his disciples, as they go out into the world, would reveal to the world the glory of God the Father and God the Son that his disciples would show to the world who God the Father and God the Son truly are. We, as Jesus' disciples, as we reveal the Son of God to the world with our words and with the way we conduct ourselves, we are shaped by who Jesus is. As we go out and make clear who Jesus is. We don't necessarily we don't die on a cross for the sins of the world, but our lives will be ones marked with sacrificial service. We may not be able to do miraculous healings, but we will have compassion and seek to help the sick and the weak and the underprivileged as we are able. And we will approach those who perhaps make us feel uncomfortable. As Trinity Northeast considers where to plant a church in the next couple of years, would you consider going to a church that's in a place 
that makes you feel uncomfortable. If there is a place that you can go as a church that is outside of your comfort zone, to a place, perhaps, where there are a lot of people who are obviously sinful, even perhaps sinful or lawbreakers in the eyes of wider society, would you consider going there? Or will you discount it as a possibility straight away because it makes you feel uncomfortable? In John 5, Jesus, the Son of God, approaches with compassion a man that made God's people feel uncomfortable. A sinful man. A man with a severe disability. A man that no one else was willing to help. You've heard a bit this morning about the work that Tab leads at the orphanage in China with the children there. Now let me tell you, that place, before it was reformed in any way, made me feel uncomfortable. When there were sometimes 20 children with only one carer, it was a real-life Lord of the Flies situation. Sin was obvious and ever-present. But even more than that, many of the children's disabilities made me feel uncomfortable. All of the strange sounds, the strange things they were doing, all sorts of smells and filth all over their bodies as a result of their disability made me feel uncomfortable. And no one was helping them. Now my inclination is to recoil from that situation. And let me tell you, it's also Tab and her team's inclination too to recoil. But, prompted by the life of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus, Tab and her team approached these children. These children who are no doubt sinful. These children who suffer from severe disabilities. These children who no one else was helping these children who make us feel uncomfortable. Tab and her team have compassion on them. Approach these children and show them the love of Jesus. I don't personally get to go to the orphanage that much, but I tell you that I am so thankful to be a part of it by being there, by looking after our, our boys so that Tab can spend some time at the orphanage. I get to be a part of it. And we are so thankful for all of you here at Trinity Northeast as well because you are a part of it too. As you pray for us, as you give financially to CMS for us, you are approaching these children with the love of Jesus. If you want to be a part of that and you're not already, then these CMS brochures tell you everything that you need to know about how to be a part of it. Trinity Northeast... We thank God that in partnership with us, you are approaching these children who make many of us feel uncomfortable. These sinful children, these children with severe disabilities, these children that no one else was helping. We praise God that you are following Jesus' example. You are having compassion on these children and being moved to action. And as you do that, you are being part of letting the world know who Jesus is, a part of glorifying the Son of God to the world. Let me pray. 
Father, we do thank you that you sent your son and that in his death he approached us who are sinners and made it possible for we sinners to be forgiven. We thank you for him. We ask that you would be at work in us as your people by your spirit to take uh, the truth of you and Jesus as God the Son to the world in our words and in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.